Hello and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. Hi, I'm Kathy, and today we're looking at um, the Scottish Cinderella, Rashi coats, and all its kind of variations and what we think it all means. <laughs> yeah, particularly we look at variants from Ireland and England, and then a little bit uh, into just general analysis. Yeah, we hope you enjoy. Once upon a time, in an old kingdom, lived a princess. Her father wished her to be married to the king of a neighbouring kingdom, but the princess thought her suitor old and ugly. Dreading the thought of the impending wedding, the princess went to the henwife for help. When she told the henwife of her troubles, the henwife said, Oh aye, I ken the man, and he's nae as ugly as he is afa. Tell your father you'll nae marry wi' to coat a beaten gowd. And so the princess went to her father and told him just that. But this wasn't a problem for the king. He called upon the finest goldsmiths in the land and had them work the gold until it was so fine and delicate it flowed like fabric. In no time the princess had a coat of beaten gold that shone like sunlight. And so she went back to the henwife and told her, I hame a coat of gowd and I'm still to marry the old king. So the henwife told her to go to her father again and ask for a coat made from the feathers of all the birds of the air. And so the princess did, and once again this wasn't a problem. The king sent out his servants across the land with baskets of grain. Hey grain for rain feather, shouted the servants, and the birds obliged. The servants returned to the castle with sacks full of feathers, and soon a coat was made, shimmering with all the colours of the rainbow. Now more downcast than ever, the princess returned to the henwife once more, and the henwife said, This time ask your feather for a coat of ashes. Off the princess went, thinking that surely this time the task was impossible. But no sooner had she asked for it than she was presented with a coat finer than gossamer and greener than summer, with all the memories of its flowers and smells and sounds. Alongside the coat of rushes she was presented with a pair of matching slippers, and the promise that she would marry the old king on the morrow. Distraught, she returned to the henwife, but the henwife said, I can help you name air, you've had your three things. If you can what's good for you, you'll leave this place and find a new life. The more she thought, the more the princess knew she couldn't stay. So she packed a bag and in it put the three coats of gold, feather and rush. That night she left her home kingdom and began to walk. She walked and walked until days turned into weeks and weeks into months until finally she reached another kingdom and went to the castle. By now her fine clothes were so worn and dirty, she looked like an ordinary country girl. She knocked on the back door of the castle kitchens and begged for a job. Come away in, they said. We're needing somebody to help in the kitchen. What's your name? Rashicoat, said the princess, thinking of the beautiful rush coat hidden in her bag. In she went and was set to work. She scrubbed the pots, lifted the ashes and made sure the spits kept turning. She did all these to the best of her ability. When Sunday came, all in the castle were going to the church, but they said... You must bide here, Rashikot, and watch the dinner. So heart-heavy, Rashikot took up her place by the pot. Just then there was a great flash of light, and one of the fairy folk appeared before her in the kitchen. Rashikot, she said, why are you not at the kirk? A wan put on your coat of gowd. You must watch the dinner, said Rashikot. I'll take care of that, said the fairy, but mind and be back for the others. So Rashikot donned her golden coat, and the fairy chanted to the fire. A peat max another peat burn, a spit max another spit turn, a pat max another pat play. Let Rashikot gang to the kirk the day. When Rashikot reached the church, all eyes were on her, and in particular those of the handsome prince. He made up his mind then and there that he must speak with her at the end of the service. 
but Rashikot, keen not to be caught away from her post, left before the end of the ceremony, and the prince could find no trace of her. When she returned to the kitchen, the lunch was prepared, the table laid, and the fairy nowhere to be found. The other kitchen staff followed soon after, and once they had eaten their lunch, they said, Oh, Rashikot, there was a recht bonny lassie wi' a gowden coat, if only you could have seen. Rashikot stayed quiet and kept her secrets. The next Sabbath day she thought she might get to come to the church, but yet again she was told to stay home and watch the lunch. And the very same thing happened again. The fairy appeared in a flash of light and said, Rashikot, why are you not at the cook? A wan put on your coat of feathers. That day at the church, the prince couldn't take his eyes from the girl in the coat of feathers. But before the sermon ended, Rashikot hurried back to the kitchen to serve the lunch. And once again, the other kitchen staff were singing the praises of the beautiful girl and the coat made from the feathers of all the birds in the world. The week passed and Sunday came, and once again Rashikot was tasked with making the lunch. No sooner had she sat down than the fairy appeared and said, Rashikot, gang to the kirk the day wearing your coat of rushes and your wee shoon. This time the prince could think of nothing but the girl in the coat greener than summer, and decided he would ask her to be his wife. He tried to catch her before she left, but Rashikot was faster, and in her hurry she dropped one of her slippers. The prince picked up the shoe and turned it over in his hands, thinking, I ken what will day. And so it was announced to the whole kingdom that he would marry the woman whose foot the slipper fit. People came from far and wide to try on the shoe, but none fit. However, the kingdom had its own henwife, who was a cunning woman, and wanted her own daughter to marry the prince so she took a knife to her daughter's foot and cut and chopped it down to size. When the prince visited, it was dark in the cottage, and so he saw nothing amiss when the shoe slid easily onto the foot of the henwife's daughter. And so he agreed that they would be married, and pulled her up behind him on his horse. They rode together up to the castle, but as they passed through the woods, a little bird perched on a branch sang, Nip it fit and clip it fit, ahint the king's son rides, but bonny fit and true fit, ahint the cauldron hides. So the prince turned to the henwife's daughter and said, I'll walk back to your mother then, and see if she can fix that fit. But first give me back that shoe. That she did, and he now saw the slipper was full of blood. He rode fast as he could back to the castle, and washed and dried the shoe before hurrying down to the kitchen where he found Rashikot. Please, miss, he said, will you try on this shoe? So Rashikot did, and it fit perfectly. Then from her bag she produced its twin and the green rush coat. They were married the very next day and lived in plenty for the rest of their lives. Okay, so that was Rashi Coats. What are your initial thoughts? Uh, my first reaction? There is a lot happening There's in lot this happening. story. There is. It feels like five different folktales have been combined into one. This, mm. this poor princess, she must be exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, There, there's just a lot going on. So that one that we, like the version that we did for this, is the most widely told version. Mm-hmm. Um... We have a few other versions of this story and versions of it in other cultures. This is a Cinderella type story, um, which is Arne Thompson type 510A or 510A, um, the persecuted heroine. There's a version of it where her mother, the queen on her deathbed, tells her daughter that a red calf will be there for her if she ever needs its help and then the king remarries and there's like a horrible step mother and stepdaughters mm-hmm. and then um so then there's this red calf that is kind of filling the role of the hen wife a bit and then um the king has it killed and then Rashi Coates has to bury it and um from beyond the grave it still helps her and then it's kind of comes back from the dead and it's really different from the widely told version (laughs) is all I have to say about that (laughs) yeah um that version I actually 
find very interesting for a few reasons. Mm. So, um, as we were talking a little bit about this earlier, I have only found one place that says this, but I'm going to say it anyway, and if it's a lie, then I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but there is a suggestion uh, online um, that apparently red calves are fairy cattle, hmm. which would help explain why this is a magical cow and he can talk and he can also help her coming back like despite the fact that he's dead um mm. which i enjoyed and also then feels like it tallies a bit more neatly with the fairy yeah. that we have in this story and the whole concept of a fairy godmother yeah I think I've maybe heard of white cattle being fairy cattle, mm. or sometimes deer being fairy cattle, or white deer. Yes. Um, but that would that would all tie in. There are apparently some variants where you have a white cow with red ears mm. as fairy Cute. cattle. So that might be where <laughs> this one person on the internet said <laughs> that a red cow can be thought of as a... Mm. A sacred creature but um you know interesting yeah. if true interesting if true <laughs> but also unclear like, <laughs> you're, yeah. um yeah and then we both thought that this one reminded us of an eastern european story that has um a sort of hated younger daughter and a cow that's helping her that then dies I initially heard it on a different podcast and the episode has now vanished so I can't find it, um, but it exists somewhere. <laughs> I was going to say that also it uh, kind of, her saving one of the bones and that being how the calf can still talk to her and give her clothes and things like that mm. actually sounds a lot like the um, really, really old version of Cinderella that we have from China, where it's a magical fish hmm. that the stepmother kills, and then again, the Cinderella character has to bury the bones. Um, I think she has to bury them somewhere particular nearby, and again, she's given gold and jewels by the, I mm. guess, spirit of the dead animal mm. but it's interesting that we seem to have that motif like at the very beginning and then here but we've lost it in the traditional Thoreau and mm. Grimm versions kind of just with everything that's going on I kind of wonder if like either either like the the ones with the calf are like either they've been conflated with with this one or they're older and then the story's been like tied to like similar sort of Cinderella stories and then that's been conflated and now we have the more popular version with like the fairy helpers and things. Yeah, I was definitely thinking the same kind of thing. It feels like there are some very similar stories, the whole Cinderella idea, but there are several different magical helpers that you can use, mm. and this story has the variants of all of the different ones we tend to see. So mm. a fairy godmother, and also just a magical creature for the normal symbolism of the good, pure-hearted heroine that animals can't help but adore and protect and serve. Now go into a few notes I have on henwives and what they are. Mm -hmm. I found them, which I thought was quite a fun description, basically a domesticated witch. Because, <laughs> 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 like, she's married usually and has, like, chickens as her familiars instead of, like, wild animals and or, like, hares and cats and things. Um, but basically, a henwife was 
a person um, in the community who owned chickens, and but everyone kind of knew that they were like a herbalist or a healer, mm. and they had knowledge about like women's issues and sexuality and magic. So you'd kind of go there to get some eggs, but really you're like, oh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the traditional idea of the witch woman in brackets often a midwife yeah uh, that sort of thing yeah and um it's particularly common in scotland and ireland and uh the figure crops up in a lot of stories and sometimes Mm -hmm. the heroine really does go for eggs and then she gets more than she bargained for um and i also found a fun little fact which um says the tradition of a hen night um, before a wedding, like the bachelorette party. Um, The tradition comes from that's when the hen wife, wives or wife, would sit down with the bride-to-be and tell her about like sex and love and marriage and how all that works. (laughs) Interesting. It's nice to have some kind of a context for that. (laughs) Because, yeah... It's always seemed strange to call it a hen night. Yeah, honest. yeah. Um, and I have also wondered why so many of the folktales that we have looked at for this podcast have said something about the henwife. Yeah. So it's kind of so she's kind of this witch figure, but specifically kind of related to, um, like marriage and relationships and procreation and new life and hens and eggs and like (laughs) that whole kind of side of life yeah that concept i suppose of and as much as i dislike the phrase but like feminine knowledge (laughs) i also enjoy that sometimes the hen wife helps the heroine and sometimes is a force for evil and antagonism in the story varied yeah, and we and we just have we just have both in this one where um seems like her own henwife from back back home is a nice woman who's trying to help her, sort of. Um <laughs> Yeah. Well I only help her three times. Yeah. And then it's like oh, I've done enough. In a and very you have failed. <laughs> it's like a very sort of uh sort of fairy bargain kind of way she's just like well I've done my job I don't know what you want from me it's not my problem that it didn't work (laughs) yes it's again I guess a kind of mental archetype almost Mm -hmm. it's now time for you to go and fix your own problems (laughs) Um, yeah I enjoyed it just particularly her phrasing you've had your three things this kind of feeling throughout the story like the supernatural characters or supernatural-esque characters it's almost like they know what's supposed to happen in the end and mm. when it's close to not happening they make sure it does happen it's kind of like the henwife sends her off with these three coats and when she's not going to go to the church a fairy or a hare is like what are you doing? And then when the prince nearly marries the other girl, a bird is like, hey, hey, <laughs> that's not her. It's not what's happening. Um, and, like, we do have, like, the animal kind of sentience in this story with the birds whose feathers were, that were used to make the cloak are like, I understand, I'm only allowed one grain mm-hmm. in exchange for a feather, but um, it's also kind of like talking animals are, like, used interchangeably with fairies, so... I kind of thought it felt like there's sort of an other world going on Mm. that knows what is supposed to happen in this story and they're going to make it so. (laughs) And they will give these boons to her because this is how the story is supposed to end. Mm. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, that's a very meta take on (laughs) a magical animal slash fairy godmother. But I suppose you're right in terms of the role that they fulfill in a story it's a ways to get it back on track yeah. to get the heroine in this case the heroine back 
to where she needs to be to meet the prince and wow him sufficiently and then marry him Mm -hmm. and make sure that he doesn't choose badly. Yeah. Um, And I also thought, um, like, we can get into this more with how it plays out in some other versions I found, but I also thought it was interesting how the coats, um, like... They're almost the way they're arranged in value. You would kind of expect it to be the opposite, starting with rushes and then feathers and then gold. Mm-hmm. And um, there's maybe some possible explanation in the other stories as to how it got that way, but like purely just in this version, um, I'm I'm just curious about why why that is, <laughs> and I can't decide why why the rushed coat is the best one and like the save till last one. It is a strange way of structuring it. I suppose would rushes be more fragile and more rare as a choice. Um, like uh, by which I mean gold is a very obvious signifier mm. of wealth and power. Bird feathers Less so, but I think you're more used to them being thought of as a, an article of clothing being used to kind of line cloaks and jackets and things like that. But rushes would be, at least I imagine, would never really be used. Yeah. I was also wondering myself, they could be um, representing three elements. Gold mm. from the earth. Bird feathers of the air, mm. rushes from the water. So then, what is our main girl symbolizing fire? Which mm. then, Cinderella, for me, just personally, <laughs> quite fun. I yeah. don't think that necessarily means anything. I was just amused by how that came together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. Like, there is the little rhyme in this one that says, mm. like, she's hiding behind the cauldron which is where fire is. (laughs) So that's very fun. Mm -hmm. But what was your explanation for for how the coats might be the structure that they... Um, Well, based purely on this story, I have no idea. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. But um, (laughs) I did see one version that um, it was supposed to be like sort of how di- it was supposed to be like the bird feathers will be more difficult to get than the gold and then mm. and then they went with um if she picks rushes then everyone thinks she's that she'll be like she's crazy for wanting a coat made of rushes and therefore is now an undesirable bride but i wasn't entirely sold on that version because i found it in one place and i was like this could be the storyteller just trying to make it a more sensical yeah. story. Trying to give an explanation, sure. And that story also then said, and people thought she was mad, so they started calling her Rashi Coats. And again, I couldn't find that anywhere else. So it could just be that version is trying to make sense of it when the others don't. Um, so then regarding the coats and various other things (laughs) we can get into that a bit with these other versions Mm -hmm. um so i found the english version which is kappa rushes and in this one a rich man asks his three daughters how much they love him the first one says as much as life the second says as much as the world and the third says as much as meat needs salt he doesn't understand her and thinks she doesn't love him so he drives her away Mm-hmm. Then she makes herself a garment of rushes to wear over her fine clothes and goes to the big house and asks for work. Um, and then they don't know her name, so they call her Kappa Rushes. And then there's a ball, and then it's kind of like the classic Cinderella thing, but like she gets the fine clothes purely because she's already wearing them. So she just takes off the rushes, mm. goes to the ball, no one recognises her, happens three times. On the third night, the prince who's in love with her gives her a ring and then um, he then becomes like lovesick and goes to bed because he 
can't marry her and all the balls are off and then he asks for some gruel and so she makes the gruel and puts the ring in the gruel mm-hmm. and then um, when he finds the ring he questions her until she admits that it's her and they get married they make the wed- the wedding feast without the salt and then her father is there and is like oh food is bland without salt she did love me <laughs> and, no. and it's a happy ending um <laughs> So I found a note at the end of, like, basically just on the Wikipedia page for this story, there was a note that said um, the opening to this one is unusual because Mm -hmm. the daughter usually flees because her father wishes to marry her himself. Oh. (laughs) Oh, no. And apparently this this opening occurs in the she-bear, the king who wished to marry his daughter, donkey skin and the dirty shepherdess mm-hmm. and I was like I don't like how that relates to the beginning of Rashi Coats and how perhaps we might have changed some things at the start of that story to make it more we palatable made it very much more palatable yes because I was wondering um like there's this emphasis on him being old yeah and ugly and I mean you could also just have that as an easy plot device and a reason for her to (laughs) not want to marry him but yeah you could certainly also have it as a mask because the original retellings are considerably less child friendly yeah Hmm. yeah so then that brings us (laughs) to an irish version or it was um irish as far as i can tell it seemed to have been gathered from an Irish woman by Irish folklore collectors. Okay. Um, so this one's called The Coat of Green Rushes. In this one, the king's wife dies and gives him a ring and says that he can only remarry if the ring fits the woman's finger. The ring fits his daughter's finger, so he decides to marry her. Mm, I don't think that's what your wife I meant. I don't think that's what she meant. Um, and the daughter says she won't unless he finds her a dress with the sun and the moon and the stars and the colour of the sky, which I thought was interesting with like the one in Rashi Coats being a gold one at first. Um, mm. So he finds one the colour of the sun, the moon and the stars, but not the colour of the sky. So she said that's not good enough, and it takes him another year to find the correct dress, but he does, so mm. she runs away. Um, she finds a cottage where some giants live and one wants to marry her. Mm. Um, she runs away in nothing but her nightgown. And when she hears the giant roaring, she hides in the rushes. And then because she has no clothes, she makes herself some clothes out of the rushes. And then she comes to the big house, um, dressed in a coat of rushes. The lady of the house gives her work, and a witch appears to help her get the work done. The The king's son falls in love with her, wants to marry her. And then one Sunday, the witch appears again and asks her why she isn't at mass. Um, she says she has no clothes to wear, so the witch makes her a beautiful dress and glass slippers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she goes to mass, leaves before anyone notices um, that it's her. And then um, the king and queen tell their son that if he'd been there, then he wouldn't be in love with the kitchen girl, because he would have seen this other girl. Right. Um And then, weirdly, the king and queen are like, you should come and you should pull her from her horse before she leaves. Hmm. Mm. So then... (laughs) a bit of kidnapping coming out of church. Yeah. So then, next Sunday, the witch dresses her again, and the king, the queen, and the prince try to pull her off the horse together. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But they just get her slipper, and she gets away. Um, And then... The same thing happens with like them looking for the, the owner of the slipper and mm. girls are cutting bits and pieces off their feet to try and fit into the slipper. Yep. And um, they have like a ball for like trying on the slipper and the queen hides the servant girl behind the door um, so that they won't see her because she's apparently like a serving girl and that's gross or something. <laughs> um, so then the witch appears and says... Bonnie heels and bonnie toes is put behind the door hiding, which I thought okay. was super similar to the bird rhyme in Rashi Coats. Yes. yes, very similar. So then the slipper fits her and they get married. 
Yes, with the traditional Cinderella ending. Um, so a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I was going to say, I... Wow, I don't <laughs> even know where to begin with all of these variants. Yeah. So, I just thought, like, in those two, it just, it seems a lot more sensical the way the coat of rushes rushes comes into play and how she like gets her nickname it like it makes sense whereas in the rashi coats version Mm -hmm. um it's all a bit like they've never seen the coat but they're all calling her rashi coats and then they never put it together that she's the girl in the coat made out of rushes Uh, yeah it seems like the kind of plot hole and miscommunication that happens when you're trying to tell a story that you've heard once but you've forgotten something (laughs) crucial and so that piece of information just gets lost and then when you look at the story it's like hmm this doesn't actually make that much sense yeah (laughs) and you have to go and look at the other variations to bring it back I did make a note myself actually about the, the fact that she has no name until she names herself, mm. which is fun in a way. I enjoy that because I think sometimes that can be a way to signal some choice and agency on the part mm. of the person. Um, but also, you know, she's called Rashi Coats. <laughs> it's not. And you can see from the other tales, it's not like they're giving her this name particularly affectionately. Yeah, it's extremely, like, if we're looking at the other tales, when it's given to her, it's basically the same as Cinderella. Yeah, or even humiliating. Yeah. I just find it interesting that in the Scottish version, um, we're just like, no, actually, this coat of rushes, it's its really cool, <laughs> and and it's fine, and there's, like, nothing humiliating about her being called Rashi Coats, it's just, it's, it's a really nice coat, so. Yeah, it's really impressive, and it's why it's the one that gets done last, and the one that stays with you, because if you were trying to retell this, the one coat you would 100% remember what it was made out of, hmm coat of rushes yeah and there's like I've seen some versions where um the prince decides he wants to marry her the first time he sees her Mm. but other ones it's like the third time and like the coat complements the color of her eyes and it's like it's sort of this building of like oh she's quite pretty oh she's really pretty oh I'm in love with her and I need to marry her and it like scales with the the coat changes (laughs) which again you see in mm, some of the versions of Cinderella so La Cenerentola which is uh, an Italian variant again it's three balls and each night she's wearing an even more beautiful Mm -hmm. dress than the last one and it's unbelievable and they have to get married Um, But I suppose, in a way, that, in a way, it's a nicer story than they fall in love because he sees her once and she's beautiful. (laughs) It feels ever so slightly more earned if it's over three nights. Um, I mean, also, or, like, conversely, maybe he's awfully materialistic as a prince <laughs> and what he's really falling in love with is that she's got three really cool outfits yeah. she must have more she must have money she'd be good for the kingdom yeah i mean he doesn't even recognize her yeah without um True. without them i did quite like in the irish one that he was already in love with her yes that was cute was very cute um There was also, like, so the, with the prince, like, 
turning around to the henwife's daughter who is not Rashi Coates and being like, oh, okay, you go back to your mother. Give mm-hmm. me that shoe back. Mm-hmm. That was in one version and I thought it was nice. So <laughs> I used that version. But in most versions, he just throws her off. <laughs> I mean, uh, I wondered if you were going to say he just kills her. <laughs> so that's better. Better. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... In a way, that's a nice angle to have because normally if you have the mistaken princess, so like Swan Lake, for example, um, the prince really doesn't recognise until it's far too late to fix it and now we're in a tragedy. Uh, And then in this one, he's quite a polite prince (laughs) from what little we have of him in the story. I'm a lot more confident that they'll have a happy marriage than in a lot of other folk tales. (laughs) Like, he really seems like quite a nice man. He even... This really mattered to me such that I made a note. He washes and dries the sheet. There's no blood. He is a kind, considerate, polite young prince. His parents have raised him well. Like, I couldn't find that in older versions but <laughs> again I was like well that's the superior prince so <laughs> this is clearly I can't believe all that we're asking from a fairy tale man is that he cleans things yeah but and the know, thing is in the versions where he doesn't do that mm. it just says that he goes to her and asks her to try it on which doesn't mean that he doesn't clean it it just means yeah. we don't get to hear about it it means it's just not made explicit in the text yeah so in in the version that he does try it on i was like that's our prince <laughs> that's the one <laughs> exactly <laughs> the thing i think it's you know you can it's very evident that what you choose to include and what you choose to disregard in a story really informs the politics of it, the relationship dynamics, the sympathy that we have towards the different characters. And him being quite kind and considerate to the henwife's daughter, who is really attempting a lot of deceit. That's going to come out eventually. <laughs> it's going to come out, yeah. It's... I'm always surprised by how many fairy tales have this because, well, I suppose if you're leading a a very deprived life, you might decide that being able to eat was more important than having a healthy relationship, which (laughs) is fair. But you're going to have a very uncomfortable marriage for the rest of your life now. Yeah. Awful. Why? (laughs) Why are you making this choice? Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely think, like, just looking at, like, the Irish version and, like, thinking about if this Scottish version has been made more palatable. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, we have the rule of three going on, but the Irish one also has it in the fact that um, it has three sort of potential marriages and only one is success- successful. Yes. It has the marriage to her father, the marriage to the giant, and then the marriage to the prince that she actually loves and marries. Mm-hmm. And, like, in the Irish one, it says, um, so the giant wants to marry her and he tells her to, like undress to her nightgown and like sleep against his back to keep him warm and that's why she like flees in a state of undress Mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of wondering if that might have been there but we got rid of it along with the marrying the father because we don't want any implication that she lay with a giant Mm -hmm. yeah that's also and that kind of a trope you do see crop up in folktales sometimes um uh, particularly thinking of some in like the arabian nights where there is a a sword placed between the 
hero and heroine because they have to share a bed, <laughs> but we're not allowed any kind of implication <laughs> that something might have happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, either she has to flee or it has to be the two morally good people in this story who would absolutely mm-hmm. never do that before they were married. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't know that this story also needs giants in it, I have to admit. <laughs> it's a long story already. <laughs> but it would also make sense to have a third location, like you're saying with the marriage, because we have mm-hmm. the one castle and then the next castle. Yeah. And we also have like if that if that giant portion was included in the Scottish version, we would then have three sort of female semi helper figures because you would have the henwife at the start. Mm-hmm. And then when she finds the giant's house, the giant's mother is there who's an old woman and she tells her to run away mm-hmm. because her three sons are giants and they want to marry her. But then the sons come back. Mm-hmm. And then we have the third location and we have the female her like female fairy helper so again it would complete another sort of trio of figures um yeah and it just feels like with the whole setup of the tale of it being three coats and three times that she goes to church and it just you would expect that theme to just be followed through you're not losing anything mm. by just keeping everything at three. Mm-hmm. We like it. It's a traditional motif in a story. Yeah, I was also kind of thinking there was something like we're meant to feel like she deserves this happy ending because she it's like she can't deserve it until she's toiled away in the kitchen. She has to do that to deserve it, but it's also her goodness is inherent, her deserving, like, mm. because she already has these magical co- coats that sort of win her the prince, and she has those because she was a princess. So it's kind of this, we're not sure, we want her to earn it, but also she has to be inherently deserving of it. Yes, it's the whole sweet and sour grapes thing that you see in Sleeping Beauty. Like, oh, you can't marry her, she's a peasant girl. Oh, but actually she's a hidden princess, so you can marry her and actually everything's fine and we don't have to interrogate any kind of classism or socioeconomic difference. I mean, okay. But it means you're really just propping up a status quo that especially in like stories that you're telling your kids that are from a long time ago, very elitist. Mm-hmm. There's not really a lot of princesses running around. Yeah. It's the ultimate dream. Yeah. There's also, I think I just wanted to mention um, about kind of the fact that there seems to be so many kingdoms. Um, just wanted to mention that historically um, there was like seven Pictish kingdoms mm-hmm. in Scotland. So we could be talking about a time when like kingdoms were very small and there were lots of kings and princesses just in case anyone was thinking like where is this other kingdom did she go to Wales did she go to England like where is she (laughs) probably still in the same same country technically yeah which would also explain why it seems like she's able to just walk there yeah and you know it takes a little bit of time but not that long like, you see that a lot with um, kind of neighbouring kingdoms, but they're definitely not 
talking about any of the sort of modern kingdoms and country borders that we would be aware of. Mm. Yeah, and it's evident as well in the old Eastern European ones and the Grimm collections. These stories, so they, they have a place and a time, but they're also almost entirely divorced from it. Their archetypes, they have to be. Um, but it certainly feels like it's reminding you of a time that you did have a lot of small princedoms and kingdoms near each other, which was the case for the majority of countries until a few hundred years mm, ago. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. recent, actually, that we're in such huge formations as we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I suppose I also just wanted to touch on the like um, sort of impossible task thing. It's like um, pretty sure it's like more common for that sort of thing to be um, given to the protagonist and they overcome it. Um, but in this one, it's kind of used to deter the antagonist which is her father <laughs> yeah in the i made the same kind of note um sort of querying why it is that we're so unsympathetic to this king who other than being old and ugly <laughs> has done everything that she asked him to and that in a, a normal Folk tale, like you say, it would be the young dashing prince who's doing all of the impossible tasks that the princess mm. sets for her hand in marriage, and he would win through magical means, and he would be rewarded with her love. Yeah. Obviously, if this is just a a nicer version that originally began with the king mm. being her father wanted to marry her. Yeah. <laughs> That dynamic is very well explained. Yeah. <laughs> less of a problem than it was. Yeah. Um, but still interesting in a way that she's relying on fairy tale tropes to protect her. Yeah. From her father. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to just touch on the fact that in a lot of versions, it's like, why is she, it's like she doesn't want to marry the prince because, <laughs> like, why does he have to, like, in the Irish one, why does he have to question her yeah. before she admits that it's her? But she's already put the, ri the ring in his food. In the soup. Yeah. The gruel, even. Yeah. Um... It just seems weird, but I can see, but in the Scottish one, there's a bit less of it because you're like, oh, she doesn't want to get in trouble for leaving her post. And mm. Yeah, it makes more sense. Yeah. There's a bit of like, why doesn't she come forward when she hears that he's looking for her? Yeah. Um, but I feel like we're maybe supposed to think, oh, she's just so nice and modest and she doesn't want anything for herself. But yeah. if he still wants to marry her, then yeah, gee, I guess I guess she will. <laughs> I guess she'll just be overwhelmed by how um, kind and um, passionate he is and how much effort he's putting into finding her. Um, yeah, I feel... Again, it is something you see sometimes that the heroine makes all this effort to talk to the prince and then won't reveal who she <laughs> yeah. is and won't make it easier for them to get married at the end. Yeah. And it seems, like you said, an incredibly strange thing to do. Yeah. It, you know, maybe there's another piece of context that we've lost over time and several retellings. Maybe a lot more of them are in the position where they're somewhere mm -hmm. where they shouldn't be. Yeah. 
it's kind of like I think sometimes you can tell what versions of the story are like more popular and more widely told because like I think in Cinderella she's been locked upstairs or something she yes. can't physically get out there to try on the slipper yeah and we kind of we get like a solid reason but in the kind of smaller and lesser known ones things happen and we're just like okay okay that's yeah that's happening <laughs> yeah we just have to accept it mm-hmm. um which makes sense obviously all of this is oral tradition and there's not obviously there are some communities that have an incredible amount of wealth and knowledge from their oral tradition but there's a lot of societies especially here in the west that we've we don't really have them anymore mm-hmm. we've lost them and i think a lot of them have also ended up becoming quite Inaccurate is wrong to discuss a folktale because it kind of can't really be inaccurate. Mm. It's a story that has its variations, but certainly that maybe have less detail and make more sense Mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. I suppose the only thing I had uh, also made a note of, which we've slightly covered already in the discussion of uh, fairy versus henwife versus magical talking creature. But it was amusing to me that you have a fairy come in and say, you should be at church. <laughs> the, the fairy yeah. is universally a leftover from pagan traditions. Yeah. Surely the fairy should be pleased that she's not at church. How is this yes. role... Of facilitating that given to the fairy. I find it very funny. But it also probably speaks to a lot of corruption in the tale. I want to blame the Victorians again. (laughs) Um, Because they, they did do a lot of the kind of softening of fairies and like making them cute and palatable. Because definitely... Before then, fairies were just basically interchangeable with demons. Maybe not quite mm. as bad, but they couldn't go into churches and they couldn't... You certainly couldn't trust them to watch lunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a bit a bit strange. Um, the version that has it being a talking hare... Um, well, I kind of thought, well, it's super common... I think, for uh, hares to be associated with, like, witches as, like, a thing they shapeshift into. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought, if it is a hare, I think we're all meant to maybe know when we read it that it's not really a hare. Um, But other than that, yeah, I was a bit like, a fairy just appears to her? And then I was like, maybe if it's, like... um, like, if the henwife, the first henwife, was more benevolent and less, like, <laughs> indifferent, <laughs> I could buy that it's supposed to be her all along changing into various animals to help us. Mm. But, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Um, I suppose one thing it did remind me of, um, I made a note, is that there's a folktale called East of the Sun, West of the Moon mm. uh, from, I think, Norway in some of the discussion that I've seen. But I thought it was more Eastern European than, um, than that. There's not a lot of overlap until you get to the ending and the young princess has three things and she has to give them one each night to the evil princess so that she can see the prince. Hmm. Now the evil princess has given the prince a sleeping draft so it doesn't matter that the good princess goes to see him because they can't talk. 
but the whole point is that she's bartering these mm. objects away to have an opportunity and on the third night he doesn't have the sleeping draft and they defeat the evil princess, they get married, blah blah we get the traditional happy ending but it made me wonder if originally there was some kind of bargain mm. that Rashi Goats had to be making with the fairy to be able to go and visit the prince and catch his eye and yeah have that kind of resolution that you might expect. Yeah, that would make sense. And also, I feel like the coat of rushes is like her final form. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. she doesn't, um, it, it's almost like she's worn the gold coat and she's done with it. She's worn the feather coat and she's done with it. And then also, obviously, her name is rashy coats so it's like <laughs> yeah I feel like the implication certainly is that these coats almost cease to exist once she's worn them at the church once mm. so it'd be interesting even if that's kind of the implication and yeah then you would almost revert to it being a bit more like Cinderella you have till mm. midnight you have till the end of mass to wear this and then you have to come back and give it back to me yeah yeah, and I kind of, I think that's where I kind of got the impression that the fairy knew that she was supposed to go to the church and mm. make the prince fall in love with her because, um, like, why, why would a fairy want someone to go to church? Um, which made me kind of think, like, it's this kind of feeling which I think occurs in other folk tales of a kind of setting the world to rights and these supernatural forces know how the world is supposed to be so mm. and the world is supposed to be that Rashi Coates is married to the nice prince so it's almost a kind of like I said before putting it into place and setting it right yeah which you can then see why over time you would kind of make the the supernatural force for order represent good mm. and then be softened and have more magical powers yeah. and almost take their teeth away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was I was almost surprised when I was looking into different versions that we didn't have some sort of rumple stiltskin thing coming in. Yeah. Because we have like she needs to go and like she needs to go to church and therefore fall in love with the prince and the fairy is offering to mm -hmm. do all these things to make it so that she can go. I was also I was like almost surprised there was no mention of but you have to give me your firstborn child. Yeah. And it would be quite easy actually to just have a couple of lines on the end because mm -hmm. we have Rumpelstiltskin type stories. You could have a very few lines where you say that she outwits mm -hmm. the fairy in the way that they always do mm -hmm. and lived happily and well with her husband and children. <laughs> it would just be another insane thing happening in this tale. <laughs> but yeah, it feels like the fairy just coming in at the end is an outlier. Yeah. It's an unresolved thread. Yeah, it's it's just strange, and it's it's not like like it almost makes it feel like two stories. We have a story about a princess who has her henwife help her, and mm. it fails, and she runs away. And then we have a different story that's about a kitchen girl who gets a fairy helper, and she marries mm. a prince. Yeah. It does seem like someone's gone, oh, we could just tie these together, wouldn't that mm. be fun? And then you get the traditional U-shape of happy circumstances, sad circumstances, happy again. Mm. Uh, which, if you would like to know, is based on box office statistics, the most successful <laughs> way to have a story. Well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Huge thanks to Rosie and Kathy for their work in bringing this episode to life with your narration and research. Thanks also to Joanne and Taylor for your research, of course Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website and social media in the show notes as well. The music this week was Celtic Impulse by Kevin MacLeod. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.